all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and they you've got to get them off welfare. Hi, uh, welcome to Cars and Comrades, uh, your onlyest socialist uh, uh, car podcast. This is Brandon. I'm here with Bryant and Zach today. Uh, no, no, no Connor. He abandoned us for a car show. Hmm. What, yeah. going out in real life and doing what we talk about on this podcast? Fucking lame. Yeah, it's best to stick with purely hypothetical car work. I find it much easier. Oh, yeah. Less busted knuckles, too. Oh, God, my hands are bleeding right now. <laughs> Constantly. Just Mine are a little bit as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, we've proven our credentials. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Does that count as praxis? Yeah. Yeah. That, as, as far as cars go, that's practice. Praxis. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Theory is uh, the, um, the um, Chilton manual or whatever. I'm, I'm good at cars <laughs> in praxis, not practice. <laughs> but uh yeah it's, uh so car, car uh project car updates uh uh zach you want to start for us this week yeah i definitely do um i'm super stoked i finally got the front mount intercooler core that i've been waiting on since november dude if you see a part is back ordered and it says estimated ship date just know that's a lie that is never, ever true. Because it said like 18 days or something, and I ordered it, I don't know, November 24th or something. It showed up uh, this past week, which is, you know, the week of the February 19th. So I think the idea of an accurate estimated ship date is, is a pre-COVID thing. Like, that's just not real anymore. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's gone out the window. For that's sure. like expecting the grocery store to have food in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a ridiculous thing to assume is going to be true at this point. Um but yeah, it finally fucking came. I got real stoked and I ended up putting it on last uh well not last night uh what was it Friday night after I got off work and ran errands. So I was I currently have no garage space at my house. I have a parts car in the garage. So I just did it in the street in front of my house um, <laughs> and I finished at 10 PM. And by that time it was like maybe 30 degrees pitch black. So I had my propane heater out in the street, just on full blast, just to give me some sort of warmth in front of the car, but I got it done. It's fucking awesome. I think it looks really cool. I have no front bumper on my car, uh, which I think is Hella rad. I don't care that it looks kind of shitty. I think it's it's pretty cool. Show it off. Let all, let everybody know I'm one of the cool kids with the big front mount now. It's it's rad to see your radiator. It is. It is. I'm just thinking it sounds tough. It's like I'm not here to look good. I'm here to get shit done. Exactly. What's a front bumper? Extra weight? Yeah. No, thank you. I'm not here for looks. I'm here to 
fucking go fast. Also, my front bumper was cracked to shit before. And to make it fit, I'd have to trim a bunch of it out. And I really think it doesn't have enough structural integrity as it is to trim anything off of it without just falling to pieces. So, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to leave it off for now, I think. Yeah, it, it's it did interfere with my intake. The the I guess that would be the hot side piping. So I had to take my massive like six inch cone filter that I had on there off and go to the parts store and buy the smallest one they had, which actually fits and gives me a filter, which is good, but also makes the intake intake noise like twice as loud. Uh, so now it's even more rowdy and obnoxious, which I'm all about. I think it's great. Um, I've seen those. Um, I think Cobb makes like a carbon fiber intake box for oh, AJs. Yeah, yeah they're it, like three hundred and fifty dollars for the box. Yeah, I've been I've been eyeing that though. I I kind of really want one since my air filter box is held together with zip ties right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I think it's a cool upgrade. I like carbon. I think people call it like rice or whatever, but honestly, I would have a full carbon car if I could. I think it it's super cool. Yeah. So uh, fuck the haters. Do it, man. I'm good I for it, man. It. Like it, it's like, oh, why is your car so fast? It only makes 400 horsepower. It's like, well, yeah, it weighs 1,200 pounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's literally all carbon, so it weighs half as much. So, you know. It's just weird because cool. I'm mostly carbon and I'm slow as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I'm carbon based, and I'm not fast at all. Yeah, uh, I know, I know, I'm carbon, and I know I'm based, but I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, quick side tangent: I I work at a um, aircraft manufacturing company right now, and I occasionally work with like composite material and carbon fiber, and it is just kind of wacky how like light and stiff it is compared to you know fiberglass or plastic or whatever. Uh, oh yeah, know, carbon fiber like fun. actually does kind of blow my mind. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty cool shit. I like it a lot. What else was I gonna say? Oh well, that's enough on that. I did also buy a an RC car from the grocery store because <laughs> you can customize like every part of it. It has like different gear sets. It has different steering racks that you can put in that give you like a different steering angle the um the remote has like trim adjustment for the left and right wheels so if your car if like your rc car is driving and pulling to one side or the other you can literally align it through the remote control this thing was a hundred bucks like at the grocery store yeah at, at target like it's uh it's called like a hex car Huh. Or something. I don't, it was super rad. Has different what? springs that you can put in the suspension, so you can have like softer or stiffer springs. Super customizable. It's pretty tight. I'm so excited uh, to play with it. I'm gonna finish it up tonight and have a blast like a child. And uh, honestly, the part wait. of this I object the most to is that you referred to Target as a grocery store. <laughs> wait, what is it? Is it not a grocery store? I don't. It's know. just like it a just super feels... grocery store. You're probably right. It just feels wrong. It's, it's like an American grocery store, you know, where it has clothes and home goods and furniture and everything you could ever possibly yeah, it's, want. But Target's just a bougie Walmart, but yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a bougie Walmart. Exactly. Actually, dude, I know a lot of people who have gotten into the RC car thing, though. Like, even in the van world, like, I see so many people doing, like, old school style van 
RC cars. And oh yeah, there's a huge community for it, but like I looked into them and the ones that people consider like legit or whatever, like, oh, this is a good starter one, are like four hundred dollars. I'm like, Jesus Christ, like that's a lot of car parts. But then I was gonna buy Legos that were fifty dollars at Target, and then I found the RC car that was a hundred, and I was like, fuck the Legos, I can't drive Legos around. <laughs> so I've suddenly become so curious about your life. Uh, let's talk about it it, what do you want to know bud (laughs) no i'm just just you know like you're just wandering around target like i should buy legos i'm 30s i'll buy a remote control car instead yeah i mean that's why i became an adult i mean to have my own money and have no one tell me that i can't buy legos and or rc cars like next time i'm at target i'm buying those legos you know like, I just got to split it up a little bit just to justify it. But I'm not even making fun of you. I, I, I respect this. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I, I take no offense to it. I, I'm a big kid. Like, I'm just a kid who has control of a little bit of money. And so I, I buy RC cars and, and Legos a lot. I have almost every Lego car uh, that they produce currently, other than the really big ones that are, like, uh, 150 plus, but everything that's like a hundred dollars or less that's a car made by Lego, I, I have. Okay. I it's it's a fun thing to kill an evening, and then I get a little model car out of it. Like you, I don't know. you know, you were it's talking a, a minute ago about like becoming an adult as if it was an option, but I think I understand what you're talking <laughs> about now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I like, mean, like to overanalyze. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 go for it. Go for it. I overanalyze stuff like this. I I, th- I think that's the Marxist in me. And so I, I, I sort of think of this sort of thing as like, uh, we can't achieve adulthood in sort of the traditional way that we were like raised and promised, would, you know, would be there. And so I, I wonder like to what extent people are like grasping at straws to like, like we fought so hard to become adults. And now we're like, no, no, this, this is terrible. I want to be a child again. What, what did I like when I was a child? Legos. Let's, let's do Legos. <laughs> I can't afford yeah, a house. I, think you're... I can't afford a house, so I'll spend two hundred dollars on a Lego set. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like our parents' generation was, you know, at this age building homes. Literally, they were like, "I'm going to buy this property and build a home on it." And now it's like, "Yeah, right." What do you think? I am a millionaire? No, I'm going to buy Legos and build those instead. You know, it scratches the same itch a little bit, but obviously in a very reduced kind of way. Not nearly as uh, valuable, but no, I think you're completely right. We were all just like, "This fucking sucks." I want to do what I was doing as a kid, which was definitely like just fun things, you know. Yeah, but I would, I would never, ever choose to be an adult if it didn't mean that I got to, you know, play with Legos and buy RC cars. I remember hitting a point when I was like 30 where I was like, man, I wish I got along well enough with my parents that I could move back home. I fucking hate bills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the, the main reason that I don't currently live with my parents is that they would talk mad shit to me about wasting money on RC cars. If I still lived with them, <laughs> you know, they're like, you don't have your own place. Why are you spending a hundred dollars on RC cars and Legos? Like, maybe save that money and you could afford a house. Yes, because houses are in the hundreds of dollars these days. That's totally <laughs> realistic. 
Yeah, but if every time you wanted to spend a little bit of money just to get some joy out of life, if you just sustained yourself through misery, after like no more than 60 or 70 years, you would have saved up enough for a down payment. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, is that all? I'll definitely be alive in 60 to 70 years. Given the area that you live in, I know what housing prices look like, and it might be more than that. No, I, I don't think 60 or 70 is an exaggeration at all. I think that's actually pretty much accurate. If I had lived like a monk for 60 or 70 years, I could afford a down payment here in the here and now, which, you know, in 60 or 70 years, a down payment will probably be half a million dollars. So, you know, it's an ever moving goalpost away from me. So, yeah, yeah I, uh, I, I intensely hate the mentality of like, if you just strip your life of all joy, you too can maybe hypothetically one day have mediocrity. <laughs> my, yeah. uh, I, I saw my mom uh, making avocado toast for breakfast once. And I'm like, you know, if you stop doing that, you could afford a house or something. <laughs> She's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I just, I, I, I own like a house. <laughs> <laughs> I, I only own a home because I live in, I moved to the city at a time when it was probably one of the cheapest places in the country to buy a house. If you, if you, yeah. if you were willing to do a lot of fucking work yourself and like, there were just so many abandoned homes here that they were kind of just really easy to buy. So, uh, I didn't necessarily go through that Avenue, but it was attainable here. Um, Zach, I, I guess I'm doing hosting duties today. Zach, are, are you done with your car updates? Besides yeah, the I think cars? So. I think so. I feel like I had something else to go over. Maybe I was just going to say that the the part out on on the parts car Subaru is going well, but I think that's it. So yeah, we can move on. Oh, we can go back to you if you think of something. Yeah, for sure. Brian, you've been up to anything these last couple of weeks? I've been up to a few things. Um, first off, uh, my dad texted me the other day. He was cleaning out the garage, and he found my old RC car from the late '90s that has like ten AA batteries that you put in it. Oh, he's, yeah. like, he's like, do you still want this? I'm like, hell yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Of course. <laughs> I haven't gone over there to pick it up or anything, but I will eventually. It's it's the Radio Shack Turbo 2. Um, oh, man. Radio Shack. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, that's <laughs> from the past. Holy shit. Yeah, there yeah, was a, yeah. a Radio Shack in the same parking lot as the Blockbuster video in my hometown, so... Yeah, I, I bet is that the parking lot even still there. <laughs> Actually, it's a Harbor Freight now. Oh, see, it just moved with you through the years. Yeah, like that's awesome. That that rundown fucking hellhole of a strip mall is just keeping pace with me. <laughs> uh, as much as I would like to turn this into a Casa Bonita uh, podcast, now uh, we have. This is possibly the the furthest off topic we have ever gone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me see if I can remember where I was. Um, you had found a rem- an RC car at your parents' house. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I was up to... I, I talked about this last time a little bit of um, trying to figure out what was wrong with my uh, Sabaru. It was acting kind of strange, like the power would cut out when I was going for like full throttle under boost and um, it was like having numbers. uh, It was showing like signs of knock on the, uh, on access port, you know, it was saying, you know, it's pulling timing because of knock and stuff. 
And so um, I, I hesitate to call this guy a tuner. I mean, he is a tuner, but he's just some guy I found on Subaru forums. And he's like, hey, I'll, I'll uh, you know, do a little few tweaks on your tune and get this to, to work properly. Um, so I was emailing him back and forth and he's like, well, it could be this, could be that, you know, check your drivetrain, see if nothing's like binding up. And, uh, you know, it could be a sensor, it could be coils. And I, you know, read a little bit more and other people were saying, yeah, it's probably the coils, you know, those go bad after a while and you can get a misfire and that would cause the hesitation. And I was talking with Zach and some other folks and everyone was saying, get the OEM Subaru coils. You don't want to go fucking around with aftermarket stuff because like the internal circuitry might be a little bit different and that might throw your timing off or something. So I went ahead and got brand new Subaru OEM coils. I could have gotten them at the dealership and they would have been like 600 something dollars for four of them. Jesus Christ. I just got them online for around like $350 for four of them. So saved a little less than half the uh the price but i i swapped those in last night which is a bit of a job it took me around two hours because you gotta take the battery off one side to get to them and the entire air box off on the other side to get to them and then you gotta like snake your hand down in there and unbolt this thing right next to the the uh frame rail so it's a it's a bit of a job but i i got that done and then i you know, cleaned up and went for a drive last night. And I'm like, oh, this is a lot better. Like it's running smoother. You know, it, it doesn't seem like it's running rough when the air temperature is cold or when the engine's cold. And then, you know, once I got it fully warmed up, I did a pull on the highway and no, uh, no hesitation, no breakup or anything. And it made a little bit more boost. So I think it, you know, had the chance to like rev out fully and and you know make the full power and everything so i did a data log of that and sent it back to the tuner guy and waiting to hear back what he thinks but i think i might go back to the last tune that i had because he had given me like a a safer tune with less timing to to you know um make sure it's not gonna knock or anything fucking lame so i think i'm gonna go to the the full send tune that i had before and see how that works and see if it starts knocking all the timing. That's what's yeah. Up. So it's making about 18 pounds of boost right now. Um, when it gets all the way up there. Uh, I don't think I need to do any more than that. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually probably not. <laughs> I don't think a stock <laughs> fuel system would be super happy with, with more than 18 pounds. Yeah. I mean, it is hitting 95% duty cycle on the injectors. Uh, but the guy I was talking to said that they actually go up to 110%. Yeah. So, um, they, I guess Subaru works on the same logic as like my high school gym coach. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really understand how percentages work, but uh, I guess it's good to have that extra headroom just in case. Yeah. I mean, you can run them up there at like above a hundred percent, but I think it basically means that they just don't close. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's what he was saying. Constantly like a hundred percent still has some, um, uh, what do you call it? Like downtime? What's the word for when you're talking about injectors? Uh, Something like that. I don't know. Dwell, dwell time. Sure. 100% still has some dwell time where like they're opening and closing, but at 110%, they're just not closing at all. They're basically just spraying constantly. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, it's not great. 
but yeah, that's all I've been up to. I uh, oh, and when I was when it was uh, like started knocking, I was kind of babying it and not driving, you know, flat out as much as I had been. And my um, my mileage went up from twenty miles per gallon to twenty two. So oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> a more efficient burn is good for both power and fuel economy. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, that was without the new coils, so we'll see if it's, oh, okay. uh, if it's better. Hoping so. Cool. But that's about it. My MR2 is still sitting where I left it last time. and uh, But hopefully I can uh, move it into the garage here soon and start tearing apart the suspension and brakes and doing all that. Shit, I just remembered what I was going to say. Let's but, hear it. Uh, the Audi. I got the mechanical cam adjuster replaced with the engine in the car. I completely oh, yeah. forgot. Yeah, I didn't have to pull the engine. I got that stupid timing cover pulled. I got the cam gear out, which is what the adjuster is on. Got the new one in. It's going okay. I'm having a hard time getting RTV onto the uh, timing cover and getting it back into the its spot without just wiping RTV on everything. But, you know, we're getting there. We're making progress. It actually came out and went back on with the engine in the car. So that's like literally saving me probably 18 plus hours of labor on that car. Nice. Hell yeah. Yeah. That, I, that's, that's been like your white whale since we've had this show. Right. Oh my God. So much longer than that too. <laughs> like you guys don't even know. It's been an ongoing saga with that car. Uh, I, I just mean to so say, I don't think long. I've never known a, a version of Zach that had a functioning <laughs> Audi. <laughs> Not many people have to be fair. Oh yeah. I, I have, I have that project too. I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. But definitely um, making progress on that, which is, fucking awesome i was like insanely stoked when that happened and then we just haven't been able to record since then so yeah happy to share it is getting closer to potentially being running and driving so hey if you're in the denver area and you want to buy an audi in the next let's call it six months hit me up actually i bet if you could find a buyer you'd be more motivated to get it fixed to sell too yeah, that's true. If you want to like encourage me to fix it faster, tell me that you want to buy it and I will fucking get on that shit. Like if you say, yeah, I want to buy it in the near future, I will get it running in less than a month. That is a very big motivator for me. So it's because yeah, then it's almost like it's crazy in work. It's what? I said then it's almost like it's paying work. That's just, yeah, that's almost. Just, that's just another job at that point. Like, well, Got to go work on the Audi today. Uh, second shift. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, congratulations. That, Thanks, uh, man. Y- y'all good or is this my turn now? It's all you, buddy. What do you got going on? Uh, well, uh, as I've been very vocal about off air and even on air sometimes, well, a lot, but like lately has seen the catastrophic failure of my mental health. And it is very acutely being represented by how little I work on anything and how mad I am at my friends all the time. Because uh, any car person knows that their friend who has never turned a wrench on this specific vehicle has all of the answers to tell you how to fix it. (laughs) Yeah. And all of my friends have been telling me just what I should be doing who have never worked on this project with me. And oh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to get my Chevy to run. 
my 75 has not run since November when I uh, pulled the intake and was redoing the gaskets. And I have been fighting with the carburetor and rebuilding it, regasketing, like just doing this, that, the other thing, and, and nothing was making it work right. And that's basically where the fuck I'm at right now. Like, But I had bought a new carburetor as kind of like a last resort. And all my friends were like, you're stupid for just trying to rebuild this carburetor. You bought a new one, just put it on. And I'm like, well, that's a really good plan if I feel 100% certain that that's what I need to do. But, and this is where I was, my setup comes in is I, I got genuinely like so worn down from everyone just saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. And it didn't feel right to me, but I just gave up. And I put the new carburetor on my van. And lo and behold, it did not fix the fucking problem. <laughs> it's almost as though my friends who don't know anything should listen to me instead of vice versa. But no, I'm a little I'm a little bit salty about it because I, I could have sent, sent that carburetor back. It was still within its 90 day return period. But it looks really pretty on the on the engine. Um <laughs> It doesn't look like it's been through like 10,000 heat cycles in its life. Yeah. You just need to do the, uh, what's the, the Warhammer, the orcs that are like, you know, paint it red and it'll go faster. You need to oh, apply yeah. that logic to uh, your car. I, so, I wish I liked red car. My, my race van is going to be red, but mo- mostly I don't uh, love red cars. It's just not me. But, but maybe if you make your engine pretty enough, it'll start. Yeah. Chrome won't get you home, but at least you look good sitting on the side of the road. Yeah. But no, I, I will say that like my one buddy who has been like telling me do this or do that, like he's actually really good at helping me like do diagnostic stuff on the fly. So I went over all of the incredibly weird problems I'm having. Like it doesn't want to start unless the throttle is all the way open. It will idle fine in park, but if you put it in gear when the engine is under load, it idles so fucking bad. The RPMs won't raise like the, your normal throttle adjustment will not raise the RPMs. It will just make it run worse. Hmm. Like all of these like weird things, I would pull the carburetor off after like messing with the engine for a little bit and gas vapor would just be billowing out of the intake. And Hmm. I couldn't make sense of any of this because I was hyper-focused on the idea that it was a carburetor problem, which for fucking all I know, it still may be because I've also completely lost confidence in my ability to work on anything I own. But I was talking to my buddy who's good with diagnostic stuff and bear in mind, this is after I've, I've done all the proper, like uh, using a vacuum gauge to set my idle and my air fuel ratio screws because I can't just hop on a computer and do this shit. Like I was, trying to go through the proper steps to do what I, w- I need to do. My buddy says, dude, it sounds like you have a misfire. And I'm like, okay, uh, I don't think you're right. But I got thinking about it. And there was one time that I'd been working on the van and I accidentally swapped two plug wires. So obviously my timing was fucked on two cylinders and the one thing that it would do was idle fine. But if you gave it any throttle, it would start backfiring and, and just sound awful like it was going to fucking explode. Yeah. So I started thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And then uh, I realized after doing some research that I, I did not follow the distributor installation like protocol at all. I just marked everything where it was in the motor and then tried to drop it back in as it was, and I think I missed a tooth 
and my timing was either like drastically advanced or drastically retarded mm-hmm. because it like without getting into like the weird stuff that I really don't understand that well about like that degree of timing, it could account for a lot of the problems that I was having Uh, up to and including like using a timing gun on my flywheel. I couldn't find the mark. And I thought that it was because my, uh, uh, the, it, it had gotten so much like surface rust and everything. I thought that that mark had just been obscured. But then I, the more I got thinking about it, the more I'm like, well, it only goes up to like like 12 degrees advanced or retarded. So if I missed a whole tooth onto the distributor, it wouldn't even be registering where the mark is. So one tooth is more than 12 degrees out on a distributor? Yeah, um, it's a helical gear, so I don't really know. But I mean, like, I don't know, there's probably like 20 or 30 teeth on that gear. So, so it's like 360 divided by, yeah, I mean, at... At thirty teeth, that's a, that's exactly twelve degrees per tooth. So if there's less than thirty, plus I already right? I already run eleven degrees of advance. Mm-hmm. So if it was that much more advanced, then oh yeah, yeah, I would be running over thirty, like yeah, like uh, 25, 30 degrees of advance. Oh yeah, that's more than enough to get you way way out on your timing. That's enough that if I had tried to do a test run, I might have put a hole in a piston. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I went through today and, and uh, started doing the actual correct procedure for dropping the distributor in correctly. Like originally I thought maybe I had just swapped plug wires on accident because it can be easy to do. And then I was like, okay, well let me find a diagram. And I got the diagram out and everything is just like, yeah, there's not like a real diagram. Cause it's the, or, like you have to go through this procedure. The diagram doesn't show you what you need to know. And I'm like, huh. You don't like have to do that procedure though, do you? So I talked to a couple <laughs> of friends, read some forums, and they're like, "Yeah, you absolutely have to do that. You dumb shit." <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, whether or not that's the problem, I don't know because I've been certain that it was like six other things at different points. But uh, hopefully, tomorrow I finish what I started today and get my timing dialed in correctly, and then I just find out that I'm real stupid and didn't put my distributor back in correctly. But then I would at least have another van. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it's a it's an easy fix rather than something catastrophic going wrong. I mean, dude, on, on a small block, if it's turning over, there's only so there's not that much catastrophic like all, everything catastrophic is bottom end damage. Anything else is just yeah. an annoying couple of days. So maybe this isn't the solution, but like yeah, I'm gonna go through it and I do have there are a lot of signs pointing towards yes. Even even to the tune that, like, I'm only, as I'm talking about it now on air, realizing that if I had missed a tooth, that that would be why my timing gun wouldn't register the mark to set yeah. the timing. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, hope, hopefully I make progress on, on, on that tomorrow, because I could really use a fucking win right now. Dude, I mean, I don't want to say it's a guarantee, but that really sounds like extremely likely that that's what happened to me anyway. Yeah. I, I tend to get uh, tunnel vision. So when I felt like it was a carburetor problem, because I had had carburetor problems immediately before the uh, gasket failure on the intake. Right. So I just went into it like in my head, insisting to myself that it was the carb. And it really took stepping back, talking to my buddy and thinking, okay, when I took the, 
intake off. What all did I do? It's like, well, I, I didn't take the carburetor apart, so it should have ran the same at least to a degree as it was. Right. I did have to pull the distributor because the distributor goes through the intake on those motors. Like, I, yep. I, I don't mean to talk like anyone's dumb. I just know that you guys don't do as much like American V8 stuff. I know, Zach, you have, but like. Yeah, um, not, not super familiar with it. So, yeah, no worries. I mean, yeah. Um, the I, listener as well, in yeah. case you're not familiar. We have listeners? At least two, at least two I hear. Yeah. I, I talk to at least three of them. <laughs> But yeah, like uh, uh, I, I think that I could be onto something, and I, I, I don't really have like once my timing is set, I just don't fuck with shit anymore. And I have watched a very talented friend of mine restab a distributor blind, and it just ran great. But I, I assume that like your third one is probably a lot different than your like third three hundredth one. So maybe I shouldn't have assumed <laughs> that I would have the same degree of finesse that he did. Right, yeah. Also, like, it was a thing where, like, he pulled it off and put it back on an hour later when we were finished working, not, like, six weeks later when I just got around to it. And I'm sure, <laughs> like, I bumped the gear here and there and just did every dumb thing else that I could do. So, yeah, hopefully that. I've had a really bad sense of time lately. Had I destroyed the suspension on my Ford the last time we talked? Uh, was that involved <laughs> with, like, towing it? No, that was that was like six months ago. Oh, um, that Ford has had so many problems that I am definitely losing track. So, what happened with the suspension? I don't remember a suspension thing. Yeah, I think that this was was very recent. So, so uh, I went to my shop to work on the Chevy, and it was actually one of the days where I was really optimistic that I had had certainly found the problem that was uh, going to fix everything. So, I really went in kind of blind, just assuming I was probably going to drive my Chevy home that day. And once my two or three quick fixes didn't help anything, like they wouldn't if my distributor's not installed correctly, uh, I go out to my van to get ready to leave, and I decide, because it's fairly nice out, that I should check underneath, because I've been hearing a, a, a certain like banging sound under certain conditions. And I had checked it three weeks earlier, and not seen anything that looked like bad, dangerous, risky, anything like that. But, you know, it was still making the noise. And so I decided to look again. Because there's a degree where, like, an old vehicle is just going to make some fucking noise. My dash rattles like a son of a bitch. And I'm probably never going to find what's just barely clicking up against the inside of it or whatever. Things like that. But I decide yeah. to climb under it and look. And realize that one of the arms that uh, had broken free before had split so intensely that it had almost completely torn itself, not even in half, but because it was uh, broke at a weld and at a seam for the channel, uh, it had created sort of a Z sort of tear. Mm. So there was like, uh, it was torn at the top and then it was torn diagonally at, across at the bottom and it was just like hanging on by a thread. Yeah, that didn't like, sound good. Like, bad, bad. And that's for the control arm that locates the wheel, like, forward and backward. It was It's the mounting point for that. So, basically, like, the reason I was only hearing a noise sometimes, it was because when I would brake hard, it would slam that mount back up against the frame. And that would make, Jeez. like, a... Yeah. Dude, if I slammed on the brakes hard, it was loud. It did it one well, time. Intense, dude. 
I did well. That's okay. The one uh, caveat that I will say that makes it so that like I wasn't being as negligent as I thought is one, I had checked it recently, and two, it's broken in another spot that is not structural. It just makes a noise. So I just assumed that that had gotten worse, and that was you know obviously not the case now. Um, but yeah, dude, it, it was gnarly, and it was bad enough that I did not feel safe dealing with it later. So I was like so excited to go home because I'd failed at fixing my Chevy and here it is like 8.30 at night and I just have two hours of fabrication work and welding and shit to like, because there's so much bad weld on there that I had to, I finally had to break down and grind everything the person before me did and I've done some bad welds on there because when you're doing it in the parking lot of an advanced auto parts in Kentucky... (laughs) with the extension cord that the manager was nice enough to run out to you, then you're probably not doing your best work. (laughs) And I I didn't even do terrible, but like I did what I did to fucking get out of that fucking parking lot. And, Oh, so help me fucking God. It was, it was wrecked. It took me yeah about two hours to fix it so that I could get home. But I was just glad it started. I was certain that, like, once I got the suspension fixed, it just wasn't going to start for some reason. I think you and I both have learned a valuable lesson. About Fords? About years so about buying fucking Fords, dude. Shit heat. I bought that Ford, and concretely, I was not a real, like, I didn't have a brand allegiance. I like Chevy because parts are cheap and accessible. Yep. Yeah. But now having owned this Ford, and maybe like many people have sworn, like, no, dude, you just got like the worst Ford you could have gotten. And in some ways, that's true because this is specifically so hard to find parts for. But I, my dream car is technically like, you know, it's not a Ford, but it's a Lincoln. So it's a Ford. Yeah. Yeah. And if I ever do get to that point, I'll just gut every Ford part on it and replace it with Chevy parts. <laughs> Nice. I will put a fucking. I, mean, I can't blame you for that. Like I'll put a twelve was, volt in it, an LS swap with a fucking like four L eighty, and just gut the front suspension and do like anything, anything I fucking can to avoid ever turning a wrench on a Ford Bolt again. Okay, okay. Let's not take it too far. You you need a Ford nine inch in the rear end. That is. I do. Respect I mean, I think we can all agree that is probably the best Ford part ever produced is a Ford nine inch rear end. But it's, yeah, past that, fuck it. Go it might be the Chevy. only good part Ford ever produced. Like, I, res- I, I respect that they can handle power. Uh, I, I, like I said, I have a nine inch for my race van, but I am just getting so fed up with it. Every, everything. My Chevy's broke. The Ford's broke. My fucking brain is broke. <sighs> no, I mean, I, I was a Ford fan before I had this Ranger. Like, I specifically was looking for just a small pickup truck for work and you know i had i was looking at you know some of the the dodge durangos or or whatever that small uh, uh, dakota yeah dakota. Dodge dakota the chevy s10 you know different things and i was like nah, like i think i want to go with a ford i think i'll get a ranger you know i i like ford i trust ford that was a fucking mistake don't trust those things god damn it man and and now you're talking about buying a another ford truck a maverick yeah but this one's gonna be different. It'll be fine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay. I can fix her. <laughs> it's okay. I can fix her. Oh shit! 
Yeah. Yeah, I wish I could meet, like, one girl that had the patience with me that I have with, like, eight vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. That's too funny. Oh, yeah, that's... It's... I don't feel like I have done anything lately, but that's... Actually, when I describe it, sounds like a lot. But the Ford thing was all in a two-hour time span from me realizing how fucked up it was to me driving at home was under two hours. And because fabrication work for me is straightforward, you know, like it's, Oh, it's broken. Weld it back together, replace it. But you know, engine stuff requires diagnostics and it's just been fucking killing me. Hope, hopefully the Chevy problem is found and I can get back. And I, I, you know, I've already put the new carburetor on there. So like I get to play with a carburetor that no one else has ever fucked with. And done their weird little thing that their buddy in the alleyway two blocks over swears is great for power. Like, there's so much weird shit like that with old carburetors. So having something fresh out of the box, I don't hate it. It's it will be a good baseline for me to start like messing with and trying to tune it up better. But it's just been such a frustrating process. Yeah, ah, that's cars. I mean, yeah, but when you get away from that. When it's your daily driver that you genuinely don't do stuff to make it less reliable, it's just frustrating. I mean, hey, I, I'm not saying buy a Subaru, but I actively make my Subaru less reliable, and it's still the most reliable vehicle I've ever <laughs> So, maybe buy a Subaru. I, I think my best friend, if I told him I was tired of things being unreliable, so I bought a Subaru, he would never speak to me again. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to... I'm going to disagree with Zach on this. I'll say buy a Toyota. <laughs> buy a Toyota if you want a reliable car. I See, I've never owned a Toyota, so I can only speak from personal experience and say my Subaru has been the most reliable car. But if you saw my car history, you'd be like, well, yeah, no shit. My, my Toyota has been dead reliable, except for the transmission exploding twice. That will not be the victory you're making it sound like. <laughs> yeah. No, man, I like, I, as much as I, I, I make the joke, like, ah, I'm so mad at my shit. I'm selling everything and I'm buying a Toyota or a Civic or whatever. I make the joke about that day. Like I was seriously considering like the amount of energy and like time and everything it would take for me to get just two things fixed up enough to sell so that I could put that money towards just a daily, like a, a daily driver, just anything. Yeah. I I can't even say that I firmly decided to not do that because I don't I don't know I like mental health wise things are bad enough that like I can't continue adding vehicular stressors to this equation. I mean I may have gone back and forth on it in the past, but I dead serious if I can get this Audi fixed and the Ranger fixed and sell them both, there is a very good chance that I will use that money as a down payment for a Ford Maverick, just to have a single solid daily driver that's like like new new like brand new off the lot has a warranty new because yeah i just i can't i cannot handle another daily driver just shitting the bed and i should stop making my subaru less reliable but i know i'm not gonna so i know it's gonna happen eventually yeah, I, I think I have that same mental illness. Like, remember when I was talking about buying a hybrid car and then putting coilovers on it a couple months ago? <laughs> yes. You know. Oh, God, we're all the same flavor of fucked up. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm sure that the Chevy is going to, like, once I figure it out, the Chevy will fire up and run great and drive good. And I'll be like, I don't know what I was ever thinking. 
talking about buying a Civic, and then it'll break a week later, and just everything will repeat. Yeah, I don't like. Yeah. I still like my idea of getting like my Chevy, my Ford, and my Cutlass all in good enough condition that if something breaks, I have two backups. Yeah, but that's that, what I've been doing for years. But everything. But my luck is actually that when one thing breaks, so do the other two. And I can't even get to the parts store without borrowing someone's car. I, I've been there too. Yeah, yep. I've, I've been there a lot lately. Actually, I just walked to the parts store because it's really close. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. I wish. Sometimes I work at things at home, work on things at home instead of my shop just because the parts store is like a half a mile from here. And the closest one to my shop, if I have to walk, is like two miles. Yeah. That's probably a good choice, honestly. Yeah, it depends on what I'm doing. If I need like a lot of tools, I'm not going to do it at home. If I just need a socket set and possibly one or two parts, then I'll just do it at home. Yeah, yeah there was a time like seven years ago where I uh, I had crashed both my Miata and my MR2 into curbs uh, doing dumb shit with uh, tires that weren't good enough. And so I had to bum a ride from my weird uh, flat earther coworker a couple times. So that was interesting. But uh, yeah, I've I've definitely had to have like coworkers give me a ride to the parts store after work because something wouldn't start. But that's usually little shit like a stuck thermostat. Uh, I had a water pump fail one time and people were like, oh, no. And I'm like, dude, it's a Chevy. The water pump's going to take an hour. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's literally four bolts. It's more about getting everything off so that you can get to it. But yeah, no, I'm just, you know, just feeling kind of run down by the whole situation. But that's it. That's that's what I've gotten into. All right. Well, uh, you guys want to take a quick break and then we'll start talking about Malcolm Bricklin for a little bit. That sounds good to me. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Uh, it is uh, a good thing that none of that got recorded, actually. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, uh, okay, well, uh, we're back from a very interesting break where we had a very edifying conversation, you know, very highbrow stuff. Um, and uh, today we're talking about a guy named Malcolm Bricklin, who I just had this guy in my head because he is a very interesting guy in the automotive field, so... This episode isn't going to have too much to do with politics other than he did uh, spend some time working with the government of Yugoslavia and a state run company there. So um, that that'll be a little little touch into market socialism and all that. You know, we uh, we might have another episode in the future where we go into more depth on that, but uh, we'll see. So um have you guys heard of uh, Malcolm Bricklin before? Only from uh, you. Yeah, okay. that's what I was going to say. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll start with a little bit of uh, biographical information about him. Uh, he was born March 9th, uh, 1939 in Philadelphia. One of uh, his early memories is that he, uh, as a child, he never liked to stop and eat because he wanted to be uh, keep playing, you know, whatever game he was doing. Um, you know, his mom had to call him to dinner, you know, five or six times or whatever. 
Uh, and then as a teenager, I believe, uh, the family moved to Orlando, Florida, and they had a furrier shop. So, like, they were selling fur coats and stuff. Oh, I was going to say they shoed horses. What? I was, I was like, oh, oh, like they shoe horses. But that's a no, farrier. That's, yeah, that's like, farrier. Yeah, no. Farrier. This is a furrier shop. So he was uh, stretching hides for 25 cents each. I have no comment about him stretching hides so cheaply. <laughs> is that a euphemism for something I don't, I'm not familiar with? Honestly, stretching hide doesn't even sound like a euphemism. That sounds like a straightforward sex act. Yeah. No, this is uh, dead animal skins, unfortunately. Do you think that you can't do sex acts on dead animals? It's actually easier Uh, than live animals. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So at uh, 19 years old, he was uh, he dropped out of the University of Florida to help his dad run a hardware store. Or is it was more of a. what do you call it? Building supply store for contractors uh, in Orlando. And it was going through some tough times. So Malcolm Bricklin helped his dad sort of turn it around and franchise it out into multiple hardware stores. Uh, they were called Handyman America. And this is in 1958. So eventually the chain grew to 149 stores. And then in 1960, Bricklin sold his shares right before the company went bankrupt and a lot of franchise owners were like suing him. And, uh, there, there's some allegations going around. Uh, but I, I didn't find all the details on that. Um, he claims to have made a million dollars off of the deal. Seven years later, um, he was, uh, had another business scheme to sell a video jukebox. That didn't pan out, so he found a deal uh, where he imported 25,000 Lambretta motor scooters from Italy, where they had too many scooters, apparently, and sold them to um, New York City Police Force to use as patrol scooters, I guess. Good. Being a police officer should be humiliating. (laughs) (laughs) I was just about to say, I don't think I could take seriously a cop on a scooter like they would try to arrest me and i just laugh like come on dude no get out of here they crack the throttle and they're just like at top speed and you just casually walk away from them (laughs) (laughs) i i know at least one person who's into vintage lambretta scooters and um uh he's an interesting guy well uh he was on the show uh early on scott um is a oh right scooter head Oh, but, shit. Uh, Sorry if you hear this, Scott. We didn't mean to disparage the Lambretta. <laughs> I mean, I did, but yeah. I know that they can technically go faster than walking speed. Yeah, I don't know in the 60s, uh, you know, how quick they were or whatever. Um, so his next scheme, his next idea was to open a network of gas stations that would rent scooters. So, like, I don't know, kind of like, I guess, if you go to a tourist town, you rent a little scooter to go around. I'm not really sure what his business model was. So he went to Japan and met with uh, the company Fuji Heavy Industries, which was manufacturing something called the Rabbit Scooter at the time. And so he was looking to, you know, import a big batch of these. And around the same time, Fuji was starting to get into the car manufacturing game under a brand called Subaru. 
And uh, so Malcolm saw the Subaru 360 mini car. Uh, this is a, a K car spelled K-E-I, which was uh, it's a Japanese word meaning light, lightweight. And now the, I'm going to have to interrupt and, and correct your pronunciation on one word here. Yeah. Um, and that is K. It is actually key. Everything else was perfect, but I, I've heard they, it, they are key cars. I've heard it pronounced at least three ways, um, either K, key, or KE. And I'm not, okay. I don't know Japanese well enough to say which is correct. I will also say that there was a van version of the Subaru 360 and yeah. they're really hard to find. And I could probably pick it up over my head. <laughs> yeah. They're very small cars as I'll get into, but um, yeah. And the, the pronunciation, um, the only reason why I'm saying Subaru is because that's all the, um, what all the uh, promotional material, all the commercials of the time, how they pronounced it. Everyone else today calls it Subaru. Uh, again, my Japanese isn't good enough to know the proper pronunciation. Uh, the only thing I know is that it, it, it's Japanese word for the, the Pleiades constellation. Oh, if, uh, if you ever hear a Kiwi talk about Subaru, they will pronounce it that same way to this day. I don't know if that's just a, um, dialect thing or if they're just sticking with the, uh, the original pronunciation, but yeah, New Zealanders, Kiwis will call it Subaru. Okay. Fun fact. Anyway. Yeah. So this is in the mid 60s when there were, or excuse me, in the mid to late 60s, around 66, when, you know, see our previous episodes on Ralph Nader and Unsafe at Any Speed, there were beginning to be some regulations on, um, you know, car safety and, and things like that. But there was a little loophole that you could, um, Anything under a thousand pounds of weight did not have to have all these safety rules apply to it. And the Subaru 360 weighs around 950 pounds. So he, he got a uh, exclusive contract to uh, import the Subaru cars into the U.S., Okay, I feel like we have we have touched on like one of the beginning moments when you see trucks in America become eight thousand pounds, but import cars <laughs> be like reasonably fuel e- economical and like reliable. Yeah, yeah, this is truly the beginning of those like legislations that led to what we have today, right? I mean, it kind, just kind of, of yeah. continued to expand to almost an absurd degree. You you uh, see the yeah. paths deviate at this point. Exactly. Well, and and so the the whole um, K car uh, classification in Japan was basically it started as a post war thing of you know like there was fuel rationing, there wasn't a lot of resources uh, to go around, people didn't have a lot of money to spend on full size cars, and there wasn't a lot of parking spots in uh, dense cities, so they had these small lightweight cars that were fuel efficient and relatively cheap that an average person could buy one over like a scooter or a bicycle or a motorcycle or something. And, you know, they had these in Europe too. Like um, in Germany, they had like Messerschmitt was making micro cars. Um, The original Subaru 360 is around the same size as like the original Fiat 500. They're all kind of very similar designs uh, in some ways. 
Uh, but in America, you know, that sort of thing never caught on because everyone wanted a, you know, full size 5,000 pound car or truck or whatever. So the, the first Subaru to enter the U.S. was the 1968 Subaru 360. He also later imported the 1970 Subaru FF1 Star, uh, which we might go into in a future episode. This was like the first um, like boxer, four-cylinder, um, front-engine, front-wheel drive uh, c- car that Subaru made, the FF1 Star. We'll talk about that later, but the Subaru 360 sold for around $1,300. It had a 356cc two-stroke two-cylinder, produced around 25 horsepower, and a three-speed manual transmission, so it topped out around 60 miles an hour. It had uh, rear-hinged suicide doors that, um, if you didn't latch them properly, they would swing open while you're driving. Uh, it also do you had, know why they're do you know why they're called suicide doors? Because it's very relevant to that. Yeah, uh, I think I know, but go ahead and uh, because when it, if it comes open going down the road, it will catch the wind like a sail. So if you try to grab the door as it pops open, it will pull you out of the car. Yep. Oh man, I had never considered that before. That's insane. Yeah, a, a lot of early like model. T maybe, but uh, some Model A's or, or whatever had doors like that, and that's that's back when they earned the name. Yep. Because also those latches were just notoriously bad already. So yeah, there's a whole bunch in Unsafe at Any Speed about you know like how shitty door latches were. Yeah. Um, back then, you know, doors would just pop open all the time. And it gets a lot worse if the door blows open instead of blows shut if it if it comes unlatched. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> Fortunately, so, in these vehicles, you weren't going much over 15 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so the uh, the 360, it also had swing axle rear suspension, like the Corvair, the Beetle, a lot of smaller cars around that same time. So it had all the same handling problems. And all of this uh, contributed to consumer reports calling it the most dangerous car on the road. At the time, some performance figures, uh, zero to 60 time of around 37 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Subaru claimed that they would get 66 miles per gallon, but consumer reports uh, got around 25 to 35 miles per gallon. Oh, my. Is it, oh, that's that's such a difference. Yeah. <laughs> Less than half of claimed MPG. That's. That's ridiculous. Um, oh, and um, I think we have time here. Um, I, I've got a little selection of several different Subaru commercials from the time period um, that I put in the that I put in the chat. There, do you guys want to watch that for? Uh, t- I, I would maybe say split. Uh, well, I don't know. I we could just do the. It. We could just do like the first 30 second one or something. Okay. Yeah, we um, can do that. Okay. So uh, I put the, the link in the chat. Um, go ahead and open that and we'll click play at the same time when y'all are ready. I'm ready. Right. I'm ready, ready whenever. Yep. Yeah. All right. One, two, three.
little Subaru really cheap and ugly? <laughs> what else can you say about a car that costs $12.97 port of entry? The little Subaru. Wow. Yeah, up to 66 miles per gallon. I love oh. the open-ended question that it starts with. Is it really cheap and ugly? What else can you say? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's wonderful marketing. I like how much the music reminds me of like seventies Italian horror movies. And a little gas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was gonna say it's very uh, cowboy bebop. Oh, I've never watched that. Good anime. Watch it if you're into that stuff. Uh, yeah, very like funky, uh, smoky room jazz kind of. Uh, I, I am familiar with it, I just have never watched it. I've, I've been told it's one of the animes I would enjoy if I decided to partake. It's, uh, yeah, I, think I don't like anime and I like it, so... Yeah, yeah it's a good one. I like it. But I think that's a good good enough for the video. Yeah, I will say, these cars are uglier than I remembered them being. Yeah. They're not. They're not good looking. I would say. I'm. I'm doing my best to not be a fanboy, but I. I objectively think they're quirky, cool. I think they're on the level of like a a VW Bug or something, where it's they. They don't look classically well styled, but I like them. I don't know what it is. They're just. It makes me enough. think of if a kid drew a picture of a mini. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, it does. It reminds me of like um. Oh, those like Richard Scary books where it was like showing people around a town and there's someone driving a little blobby shaped car, you know? Uh, no idea what any of that meant. Yeah, never no, mind. I, I'm not familiar. It's it's a <laughs> kid's thing. Uh, never mind. Um, well, I'm I, not a child, I, nor have I ever been, so I'm not familiar. <laughs> <laughs> there's, um, there's at least two Subaru 360 builds I've seen that I thought were cool. I don't have the link in front of me, but I'll try and put it in the show notes. Uh, one, this guy built it for the 24 Hours of Lemons with some kind of a um, like a sports bike, like a leader bike engine. Mm -hmm. And um, they basically made up a rule to like say that this is not safe and we're not going to allow it into the, the racing series. That's how you know you've made a cool car. That is the number one way you know you've made a cool car. If some racing series is like, nope, you cannot do that. Yeah. That's a cool car. That car is why there's a minimum wheelbase uh, rule in 24 Hours of Lemons. <laughs> That's awesome. Just to put it in context, like a leader bike engine is quite literally very close to three times the size of the stock motor that came in. Yeah. And probably, but, but, yeah, I was gonna say, but also probably eight to ten times the power output minimum. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, almost certainly. I, I mean, ten times would only be two hundred and fifty horsepower, and I think oh some God, of those yes. leader bikes make at least that. Yeah, yeah. those super bikes at that displacement, some of them are making like four and five hundred horsepower naturally aspirated at this point. I think. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think this was it wasn't that much power. It might have even just been like a 660 or something like that, but it was a, you know, a pretty still powerful. Double. Yeah, exactly. Just still <laughs> double the displacement. Um, shaved the 0 to 60 down to 25 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one I saw, this guy built for the Grassroots Motorsport uh $2000 challenge. Mm. Uh where that's your budget is 2000 bucks. And he basically used the body of the 360 as like the cab 
like passenger compartment area of a like a uh, Lamaze prototype car style yeah. build. Um, so like stretched out the fenders, like three feet on either side. And I think he had a mid mounted uh, Subaru EJ motor of some kind. I was hoping you would bring this one up. Yeah. It's a naturally aspirated EJ. So it's a 2.5 liter NA motor out of like an Outback or something like that. I yeah. Think. And it's just rear wheel drive, but yeah, that one is so cool. It looks like a tiny, yeah, like a, some sort of concept car or something. And he that built his own cool. like uh, spoiler and splitter and all the aero stuff out of like, you know, foam and fiberglass and plywood and shit. It's, it's really amazing build. Um, but yeah, I'll try and have that in the show notes. So six months after they started the company, um, it became publicly traded. Uh, so Brooklyn made a for a small fortune. Uh, he eventually sold out his shares to the CEO, the COO, um, Harvey Lamb for $150 million. And this would have been in like 1970 or so. So he had some, some money, uh, after this, um, eventually, you know, this just got folded into the larger Subaru company and it became Subaru of America. So in 71, uh, Bricklin took some of this money and came up with this idea called fast track, which, uh, would combine RV sales with shopping center parking lot races. So he would sell campers, RVs, and then have like an autocross in the parking lot also. And the plan was to have 900 uh, leftover Subaru 360s that were going to be modified by Bruce Myers into uh, autocross cars. Okay. This venture never got off the ground, but it gives you an idea of some of the logic of uh, business that he was working with uh, at this time. So in the 70s, there was the experimental safety car program that we talked about uh, a few episodes ago. There's all this focus on safe cars. And Bricklin decided to work on his own design for a safe car. He wanted it to, you know, be sort of sporty, compact, inexpensive, safe, easy to repair. You know, picking a lot of lot of high goals there but uh you know he's like why can't we do everything his design was called the Brickland sv1 for safety vehicle one and uh production began in 1974 at a plant in saint john new brunswick they had the help of a 4.5 million dollar loan from the government of new brunswick they basically yeah yeah that was a big loan in 1974 for a local government right supply. So mm. the the local economy hadn't been so great in New Brunswick. So the the head of government there, I think in Canada they call it a premier instead of a governor, um, wanted to, you know, have a big project to revitalize the economy and have more jobs. Uh the problem was that there was no one around in that area that had ever built a car. This starting also, to sound like Lordstown Motors. <laughs> uh, well, let me know if this is uh, familiar. They also um, were basically only hiring um, like welfare recipients, as in like a like unemployment to work sort of ah. scheme. So they were like basically unexperienced people that didn't know what they were doing, 
and would probably be gone from that job in a couple of months after they got a better job. So it wasn't the greatest working environment uh, for like quality control reasons. But they did have a pretty interesting design. Um, like a lot of the safety cars of this era, they had a steel perimeter frame and rollover structure. So it was basically like a safety cage of a modern race car, sort of. Mm -hmm. But uh, And then body panels made out of uh, a sandwich of acrylic resin and fiberglass. And the idea was, it was kind of like Saturn cars of the 90s. They had this acrylic resin with like the color built into it so that um, you didn't have to paint the outside. It was just, um, you know, came out shiny and uh, painted out of the mold. But was it undentable? Uh, I think it was, you know, relatively so. Uh, The big problem that they had was they had all these like hydraulic presses and molds to like combine the acrylic and the fiberglass together and like glue it all in one piece. Um, But the glue wasn't working 100%. So like they had a huge failure rate. Um, At one time it was 70% of body panels would delaminate after molding. Wow. Yeah. So their quality control measure for this was the guy working the mold. Every time he pulled one out, he would just hit the body panel with a hammer to see if it would break. And if it didn't break, it was good. And if it broke, you just throw it in the trash. So that job sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they eventually got the failure rate down to 15%, but uh, they had some other problems with that. Uh, other than that, excuse me. It also had gullwing doors that raised and lowered with a hydraulic system. Uh, because each of the doors weighed 90 pounds and you couldn't open them yourself. Uh, this was a problem. Sounds like though. a Tesla. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a little bit of a problem if the hydraulic system failed and you were in the car. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the average person can deadlift 90 pounds from a seated <laughs> position, right? That's a normal thing to expect. A person yeah, with to do. one arm. No, no yeah. big deal. It had. Uh, Front and rear bumpers that could withstand a five mile per hour crash without damage. Okay. The early models had a 360 AMC V8 with either a four speed manual or a three speed automatic. Um, what? Yeah. For so a they just. Safety car? <clears throat> yeah. Well, the Hold idea on, was. How much did this thing weigh? Was it like super heavy? I mean, it had 90 pound doors, but that's a lot of motor for something 360 sized. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I think they were they're around the same size as like a Camaro or like a 240Z or something like that. Okay, hold on. I think I'm completely confused. This was not built off of a Subaru 360, correct? This is a completely no, no, different chassis. This is chassis. a totally different chassis. Oh yeah, this my is, god. Okay. This is their own clean sheet design. Okay. okay. I'm I actually sorry. was misunderstanding I was that too then. So fucking blown away. I was like, there is no way they shoved a 360 cubic inch V8 into a Subaru 360 and called it safe. That's fucking insane. No, this is, um, it, it weighed uh, 3,500 pounds. That seems reasonable. Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that is pretty reasonable. I'll, uh, hold on. I'll send you a link so you can see what it looks like. They, they were pretty cool looking. They look kind of like um, like a 280Z or like a 
what is it like the early 300 z's from the early 80s or whatever okay uh but this is in like the mid 70s that they were making these yeah so they had an mcv8 and transmission and then a live rear axle with leaf springs so it wasn't anything real high tech in the um drivetrain component area um they are basically just taking existing automotive stuff and putting a shiny body on it that was ostensibly safe in a crash. Sorry, you said AMC or AMG? AM, uh, American Motor Company. Okay, AMC. Again, makes much more sense. I was hearing AMG and I was... No, yeah, not Mercedes. That. Okay, <laughs> all right, got you, got you. Okay, yeah, this is making a lot more sense in my head. I heard AMG V8 in a Subaru 360. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Sorry, we can go. We can move on. This is just a regular V8 in a regular size car. Cool, makes perfect sense now. <laughs> oh, uh, one more thing about the hydraulic doors—they could take up to twelve seconds to open or close. And if you um, open, if you tried to open one door while closing the other, it could destroy the hydraulic pump. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, yeah, that seems like a problem. Yeah. Oh god! Imagine having a four doors. Like, all right, everybody, it's going to take two and a half minutes to get into the car. So just be patient. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1975, uh, they ditched the AMC V8 and switched to a 351 Windsor from Ford. Boo, Ford, boo. <laughs> well, I've heard the AMC V8 isn't very good either. But no, it's not. <laughs> but, it has, but it has never personally wronged me. Hey, I think the Windsor is probably a decent motor. I don't know. I'm never going to find out. If there ever was. Yeah. It's, it's, it's okay. I wouldn't say it's great. But as far as Ford goes, it ain't half bad. So they also had to increase the price because they were losing money on them. Eventually, by the time production stopped, the price would more than double which I don't know if they ever broke even, but they made less than 3,000 cars by 1976 when they stopped. Um, and that was basically because they weren't making a profit and the government of New Brunswick is like, hey, we can't keep giving you money, sorry. And uh, they went bankrupt. So it's like Tesla, if anybody can figure out to stop giving them money. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think there was as much hype around the SV1, but, you know, definitely people were saying, like, you know, this is the way of the future. We're going to have all these safe plastic cars. Ended up not happening. Yeah, I'm afraid that I said that and it had too much of the tone of a joke, but it was a serious statement where yeah. <laughs> this, this motor company was being kept alive because the government was paying for it. Yeah. It's completely different from Tesla, though. Everyone knows hype makes a better car. So because Tesla has all this hype, clearly their cars will be great. The other big difference is that this car was oriented towards safety. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it also had problems with opening doors. Uh, so it's it's a lot like a Tesla in that regard. Uh, I don't think they caught on fire quite as much, but, you know. What could? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I could. <laughs> so um around the same time uh fiat decided to leave the u.s market and brooklyn decided hey you know people like these fiats i should keep importing them even 
even though, uh, you know, Fiat decided they don't want to anymore. Uh, so he created a company called International Automobile Importers in 1982. He imported the Fiat X19 and the Fiat 2000 Roadster, but he sold them as uh, under the Bertone and Pininfarina brands. So this is why sometimes you'll see a Fiat X19 and it's branded as a Pininfarina. Um, that those were the Italian design studios that styled the bodies of those particular cars. So everything was going great with his company. He was actually profitable and making money. But then uh, Cadillac made a joint venture with Pininfarina to sell uh, the Alante. And they put Pininfarina badges all over it. And they decided they didn't want, you know, these dinky little Fiats running around with Pininfarina badges, you know, you know, w- ruining their marketing and branding. Um, when they're trying to sell a $55,000 Cadillac. Um, so they uh, they sued and um, IAI uh, had to stop importing Fiat's. So the next chapter, um, actually, we're going to go back to 1853 when uh, the Zastava Cannon Factory was founded in Yugoslavia. So uh, this was a uh, arms company that was making, you know, first cannons, then rifles and other small arms. They built uh, Jeeps under license uh, around World War II era um, and other military vehicles for the government of Yugoslavia. And then in 1953, they started making license built Fiat cars. They might also be uh, most famous as uh, the manufacturer of the AK-47 in Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So uh, they started making all these Fiat's under license. And one of the Fiat's they started making was the Fiat 128. Uh, This was called the Zastava Coral or Coral. And Malcolm Brooklyn saw this and thought, oh, this would be a great little economy car that we can sell in the U.S. Uh, It's cheap. Um, it gets good mileage, you know, it's, you know, compact little car. It's pretty simple, easy to work on. And he decided to call it the Yugo. So, uh, because it's built in the Yugoslavia and also it sounds like you go, um, giving, uh, mobility to Americans. So Bricklin, uh, along with his senior advisor, Henry Kissinger, uh, and former. I'm sorry. Yes- <laughs> <laughs> Wait, oh, me? you know about that guy? Yeah, so uh, Henry Henry Kissinger was his advisor in uh, working with the uh, the Yugoslav government. He also worked with uh, former U.S. Under Secretary of State Lawrence Eagleburger, which is the most American name I can think of. Eagleburger. Yeah. Hmm. Um, was that his real name? I apparently that's what you uh, that's what Wikipedia says. Have you ever seen a? Uh... 30 Rock, where no. uh, Matthew Broderick's character in it uh, is called Cooter Burger. I think it's Matthew Broderick. <laughs> oh, I, I, vaguely remember, I, 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 I yeah. vaguely remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he says that the president gave him the nickname because he saw him eating a burger one time and called him Cooter Burger. Okay. That's what this sounds like to me. <laughs> 
No, re- reality is dumber than fiction. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Bricklin and his engineers suggested uh, around 600 changes to get the um, Zastava ready for the U.S. market. So uh, in, they wanted a, let's see, uh, improvements to the anti-pollution system, uh, more comfortable seats, uh, safety vi- devices, and uh, carburetors that could run on lead-free gasoline. And uh, they sent a team of British quality experts to uh, Kargoevit, uh, whatever that town is called, uh, the factory, uh, to help improvements. Um, so I'm not sure if British quality expert is what I would want helping with my new car company, but um, especially in the in the 80s. So the uh, the first shipment of Yugos arrived in 1985. And it quickly became the fastest selling European car ever sold in the U.S. Wait, really? Uh, with, yeah, <laughs> because wow. it was because it was really cheap. And uh, I guess the late 80s, there was a little bit of a uh, economic downturn. So they sold 163,000 in three years. It was the cheapest car you could buy in America at the time. It cost $4,000 base price. Which in twenty twenty dollars, that's around nine thousand dollars. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> holy shit! Yeah, that's awesome. I wish we could buy nine thousand dollar cars now. That would be. Dude, if there was any sick. nine thousand dollar car brand new right now, first of all, dealerships would ask eighteen for it. But yeah. second of all, <laughs> second of all, I would probably be on my way to buy one just so that I had something running ever. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, I. I don't know if it's still for sale, but there was a uh, Yugo for sale in the Denver area for $1,500. Well, why don't you go get it? I don't don't have a place to park it. I I just had to make that joke, though. Yeah. (laughs) So the base model was uh, called GV for great value. (laughs) It was was kind of the Walmart brand of cars. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it had a it had a 1.1 liter four cylinder engine making around 55 horsepower. Nice, respectable. I think it had a four speed manual transmission. There is the sportier GVX model, which great had value a, extreme. Yeah, <laughs> it had a 1300 cc engine making around 62 horsepower and a five speed manual transmission. It also came with uh, standard equipment, including a plush interior, ground effects package, alloy wheels, rally lights, and a center high top uh, stop lamp. So the third brake light. Okay. And then there was a Cabrio convertible version introduced in 1988, which was the same year that Brickland sold his shares for $20 million. So this turned out to be a good move on his part. Because in uh, 1992, the United Nations imposed sanctions on Yugoslavia, and basically they were not able to export cars at all after that. And uh, later on, you know, during the whole Civil War period in Yugoslavia, in 1999, NATO bombed the Zastava car factory. Uh, which is a little bit unusual because they left the Zastava um, gun factory alone. 
There was just a misunderstanding that no one was willing to fess up to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, bomb the Zastava plane. They're like, we got it. And they're like, the gun factory? And they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh huh. For sure. The what? <laughs> so eventually, Zastava was bought out by Fiat, and now they just make, you know, uh, local versions of, of Fiat's there. So were they, like, were there like major pitfalls to the Yugo, or was it just like a good economy car? It was basically just a good economy car. Like it was decently well built, and like if you maintain them, they were fine. But I think it was bought by people that were kind of down on their luck and didn't maintain them always. Okay, because I asked specifically because I don't know if anybody else falls into this, but I am a little bit older than you guys, and I feel like I very like. I fall into a demographic that was just raised on jokes making fun of Yugos. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I caught a lot of those as well. Okay, no, then I, I didn't I know mean, how much it might transfer over the years, but yeah, dude, that was like the butt of like, I won't say every car joke. It wasn't like everyone was talking about them, but if, if Yugo came up in conversation, somebody had to make a joke about it. Yeah, I mean, they weren't like particularly safe or fast or, you know, luxurious or anything, but, you know, they're a basic economy car they were probably probably about equivalent to like i don't know a base model tercel or something around the same time yeah but nobody yeah. feels the need to go out of their way to talk shit on a tercel right i mean the okay the movie nick and nora's infinite playlist which released in 2008 i just had to look it up starring yeah. michael sarah and cat dennings michael sarah's character drives a yugo and it is a recurring joke throughout that movie so i mean Okay, okay. They've been a joke for quite a while, and I definitely remember them being a joke. Yeah, I didn't yeah, mean to set that up as, as like, oh, you youngsters. I just, I genuinely didn't know how much that carried over. I just remember hearing it a lot when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. It definitely is a joke. To, to this day, I think. If you, okay. if you said the word Yugo to anyone who recognized what that was, I think it would be the same thing. Yeah, because I mean, to this up until this recording, I was under the impression they were terrible cars. Yeah, I, I thought the company failed under its own inability to properly make a car, and not because you know global politics. Right. No, we can blame uh, we can blame Bill Clinton for this one. I think. I mean, st- you still can't blame the Yugo company, which is is what I was led to believe. I don't know that that's yeah. in- it's interesting as all really. Um. And we might do an episode more on Yugoslavia and Zastava um, more in depth later. I, I'm pretty sure there's some other podcasts that have uh, explained more about like the economic situation in Yugoslavia and the civil war there and how it broke up. You know, I, I think maybe uh, the Yugopnik YouTube channel has some stuff about, you know, the market socialism system that they had that, you know, had kind of some of the worst aspects of capitalism in a socialist system that eventually, you know, caused ethnic tensions essentially to bubble over after Tito died. I guess, uh, you know, that's, that's a, another story for later on. Fair enough. Yeah. So around this time, uh, Brooklyn had another idea to import another cheap car from another smaller economy country it was the proton saga 
which is a license-built copy of a Mitsubishi built in Malaysia. But that didn't work out because uh, Mitsubishi of USA is like, hey, you can't do that. You can't bring in license-built Mitsubishis into the U.S. and pretend like they're some other car. So nothing ever happened with that. Oh, and I should say probably the biggest reason why Yugos were seen as unreliable is because you couldn't get parts for them in the 90s. Oh, that actually does make sense because we blew up the factory. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So during the 90s, uh, Brooklyn wanted to make environmentally friendly electric vehicles and uh, formed a partnership with uh, a guy named Dr. Malcolm Curie. A couple of Malcolms working together. They at first decided to make an electric car, but they decided that wasn't too feasible and they thought maybe an electric bicycle would be an easier first venture. So uh, California had just enacted the zero emissions vehicle regulation, uh, which mandated 3% of a vehicle manufacturer's products would have to be zero emissions by the year 2000. Their idea was to sell an electric bicycle through car dealerships to sort of get around this, uh, this rule. You know, because it didn't say what kind of vehicles had to be sold. I'm just imagining a situation where like a certain percentage of company profits like are going into buying their own electric bicycles so that they can justify this venture. Oh, yeah, (laughs) they probably would have. So you can see like around the late 90s, early 2000s, there was like, I think most major companies sold some electric car. Like I think there was an electric Ford Ranger. Um, There was the GM EV1. I think there's a electric version of a Toyota RAV4. I'm sure, I'm forgetting something. Um, they all had these cars that they basically only sold in California to, you know, get around this rule. And a lot of them were like lease only. And then when the lease was all, uh, done and the that um, emissions rule um, was repealed, they took all them back and crushed them. Uh, So those cars are very rare nowadays, if you can find them at all. But anyway, so Brooklyn and Curry formed the Electric Bicycle Company and started producing uh, a bike called the EV Warrior uh, in 1993. And this was basically a, a regular bicycle, but it had batteries and two motors that would um with like rollers that would rub on the back wheel to drive the wheel rather than like a chain or a, a sprocket or anything like that. Okay. See, I've actually seen that sort of design before. Yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's been used a lot for like motorized bicycles. It's essentially like a, like a brake on a, like a razor scooter, but, uh, it, it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah. It, it rolls against the wheel and, and rotates it instead of hitting the wheel and stopping it. Yeah. Um, okay. And I'll post a link in the chat. You can see someone has uh, some photos of theirs that they've preserved and they take it to car shows for some reason. Interesting. Okay. So you could pedal by yourself or you could flip a switch and go up to around 20 miles an hour for about 17 miles before you needed a recharge. And it was a, uh, sealed lead acid batteries so it was pretty heavy it wasn't real high tech like you know electric bicycles are today 
but any electric cars back then were still just that though weren't they oh yeah yeah, yeah. like gm ev1 all those you know yeah. i think all you had to work with with electric vehicles was lead acid batteries up until like the you know mid 2000s when you had nickel batteries like in the prius and stuff yeah, I mean, that was the highest of tech for 1993, to be fair. Exactly, yeah. I was surprised right now as you're like telling us about this electric bicycle. I'm like, there were electric bicycles in 1993? Right. That, that doesn't oh. even seem quite possible. I, I'm pretty sure there were in like 1893. If you if you go back and listen to the, the uh, bicycles episode, uh, I forget which one, you know, around that time, you know, people were doing all kinds of, kinds of crazy shit. That's fair. I, I guess I think of it just in the lull in the like entire 1900s where it's gas everything. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it did have some high tech features. It had a halogen headlight, LED taillight, and um, had uh, options including a wireless security remote key fob, LED turn signals in the mirrors, and a front disc brake. Wow. Okay. That's very high tech. Yeah. But all that added up, uh, the MSRP was between $1,400 to $1,900, uh, depending on all the options. Uh, wait, is that adjusted or, or in then money? In then money. Oh my God, that is a lot. Yeah. So this was roughly one third the price of a cheap car. People would rather buy uh, a used Yugo or something than a... Uh, <laughs> but they wouldn't be able to find parts for it. Yeah. <laughs> Would they be able to find parts for this thing, though? Probably not. Yeah. it. it they stopped uh, making them in 1996. They made a superhero comic book to promote the uh, the EV Warrior bicycle. Um, but uh, I guess not enough people uh, were swayed by that. Wow. I'm, I'm looking at the cover for that right now. We we got to get Nat from Collective Action Comics over here on this one. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. So that company went bankrupt in 1996. And then in 2002, Brooklyn founded Visionary Vehicles LLC to import uh, Cherry cars from China. Spelled C-H-E-R-Y. So this is, uh, it was just a basic little uh, front wheel drive economy car. So, over the next uh, three years, Brooklyn set up a dealer network, uh, se- secured funding from George Soros. Oh, so he's Antifa. Get, get, getting that Soros <laughs> paycheck. <laughs> yeah. Um, if someone was a uh, right-wing nut job, they could make a, uh, a big conspiracy theory about this. Because I, I couldn't find confirmation of this, but some sources said that Brooklyn was raised Jewish. And then he worked with Kissinger and Soros. On these things, so if you were uh, a stupid person, you could come up with some anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. I'm a stupid person, and I still choose not to do that. I'm glad. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they they started working on all the engineering challenges to get these Chinese cars to meet U.S. standards as far as like crash tests and stuff. But then in 2006, uh, Brooklyn discovered that Cherry had gone behind his back and started working with uh, Chrysler on some projects and also uh, got investment from Quantum LLC, which is an investment company owned by the Israeli government. 
Ooh, I think that conspiracy theory breaks down right there. <laughs> I think that uh, that pretty much just knocks the legs out from under. Right. Them. Yeah. So I'm not really sure why, but um, he sued them in a Hong Kong court uh, and they settled for an undisclosed amount. But that was the end of that uh, deal. He didn't give up, though. Uh, currently, Visionary Vehicles LLC is trying to get funding to produce a car called the Brooklyn 3EV, uh, which is an electric three-wheeler trike uh, that so far only exists as a rendering. But the plan is to have a range of 275 miles and an MSRP of uh, $29,000. It is an ugly rendering at that. I <laughs> yeah. gotta say, that does not look good. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe, like, if Pontiac produced the Bugatti Veyron, maybe. Okay. And made it three wheels, I think, is what I would describe this as. Wait, where, where are we seeing this at? I just Googled it. Oh, okay. I'll copy the link and send it to you, though. Yeah, yeah, it is a little bit Pontiac looking. It's not awesome. I'm not gonna lie, I was I was expecting a lot worse the way you described it. <laughs> I think I went into this with such low expectations that I I'm not disgusted, I'm just bored. Uh, let me put it this way. If Pontiac did their best job to design the Bugatti Chiron and make it three wheels, like they really went all out, but it's still Pontiac. And it's still kind of ugly. Oh, uh, outstanding driving experience. Two passengers up to six foot four in height. Uh, <laughs> here's, what, here's why I don't like that. First of all, it's a car and you're having to put a height restriction on it. Second of all, that height restriction is my height. Yeah. So Yeah, which means that you technically could get into that car, but it's probably not going to be a good time for you. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm going to really be able to utilize that 275-mile range when my knees are like blowing out from having been in the car for an hour. <laughs> yeah. Um, you hit one bump and you're going to have a compression fracture in your spine. <laughs> like, your head is hard up against the roof. So, yeah, good luck with that. It's a uh, – yeah, it's an interesting design. I, I would say it looks like something that is marketed and sold towards like – Russian oligarchs or like golf, uh, <laughs> golf shakes or, you know, anyone with lots of money from shady businesses uh, that wants a very strange looking electric three wheel sports car thing. This is just making me wonder where it falls in the scale of like every electric start like car startup right now is a scam. Right. But this dude actually has some history of doing electric vehicles. But it doesn't seem like a good one. I'm definitely not going to invest in it. I'm going to say that. Yeah, I think. I mean, if if they hit the market and they're not immediately terrible, I don't know. I mean, MSRP is what starting at twenty eight thousand. Yeah, yeah, twenty nine. That's that's not bad for an EV. Two hundred seventy five mile range is not great, but it's not awful. It's also three wheels, which is. Uh, as we've covered in the past, three-wheel vehicles tend to be great, a yep. little more scammy than <laughs> others. Well, so, but I mean, I th- on the other hand, um, 
that's like a, a 25% savings on the cost of tires. Yeah, that is true. That's true. And I hate to say this. I th- even if every one of us hates this, this design is going to appeal to people. There is, yeah, there's, you're probably there's right. a demographic that would like that. Yeah. People with oil money. <laughs> it looks problems. very hot wheels. It looks very hot wheels. Yeah. To me. And I mean, this isn't like, it's a render. This is not final production. Yeah. So right. the more I look at it, the worse they might it clean is. it up. Yeah. They might clean it up some before it hits actual market. If that ever does happen, but it won't. Man, it looks goofy right now. Yeah, okay. So, uh, Malcolm Brooklyn is still alive. He's 83 years old and still trying to sell this. 83 uh, years young? Yeah. Am I right? (laughs) Sorry, I had to make the worst joke ever. You succeeded. Good job. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you And, uh, you know, we might have a follow-up if this thing ever gets built, but uh, I wouldn't hold your breath on that. Um, and that's all I have about uh, Malcolm Bricklin. Interesting guy. Uh, been through, you know, different points in history trying to sell various strange cars and uh, some more successfully than others. But uh, yeah, interesting guy for sure. As I'm looking at the rendering, all I can think about is what happens if you get a flat in the back? <laughs> yeah, that's not super accessible, is it? Yeah, it doesn't like, look kind of not accessible at all, actually. Unless like, you just pop the trunk and there's the wheel. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, there is a video of it apparently driving. Oh, that is very loud. I thought there were only renderings. It says Brooklyn Three EV first drive. I'm watching it move. It seems oh, no, real sure. enough. Yeah. Oh, I agree with you. That is very loud. Yeah, the little three dots in the right corner. Yeah. Or, yep, yeah. Uh, it doesn't look any better in person, I'll tell you that. It looks much worse. Yeah. I think it could look better if it had four wheels, honestly. Uh, yeah, it's really doing There's itself a lot like of other problems. Oh, God, it's rough. Oh, I just saw, I just looked it up and I saw there's a, there's an interview with him about that. I might have to watch that later. Um, talking about the car with uh, Monroe. What's his name? Oh, never mind. The rear of the vehicle looks actually pretty good if it had two wheels back there. That's all I can yeah. think about. Is yeah, yeah. it looked because of the weird placement of the rear wheel. Like it looks like it's floating from the like behind, everywhere behind the front wheels. Yeah. Maybe that's intentional. Maybe it's supposed to be like, you know, how do we make this thing look as futuristic as possible? Well, we give it the impression that it's floating, at least from the rear, and that necessitates a single wheel in the center to give it that kind of look. But I think that is the wrong choice. I think the sort of flaw that we encounter with like the futurism aesthetic is that as we uh, move forward into the future, we realize that it's actually just gets worse and worse. So maybe we shouldn't (laughs) aspire towards being just terminately awful. Yeah. Yeah. The, the now catches up to the future alarmingly quickly. If you're standpoint, especially futurism made more sense when the future was hopeful. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's true. 
So yeah, Malcolm Bricklin, shitty new car, but thanks for bringing Subaru to America. And I don't you know go. if you're single-handedly responsible for that, but hey, I appreciate it. And you go too. The honorable mention to the Yugo. Seems dope. The butt of two decades of jokes. <laughs> yeah. Maybe undeservingly, though. Yeah, I actually really like the theory that they got a bad reputation because you couldn't find parts. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I can't lie. I was looking for that post that you had sent uh, about the one for sale in the Denver area. Uh, I mean, I'm not entirely against it. I do know someone who's looking for a cheap car right now. And uh, I might buy it for them and be like, hey, you you want this car? It's 1500 bucks, and uh, it comes with a free car, and I'll help you work on it because I kind of want to tear into a Yugo. Uh, it seems, seems interesting, at least. So yeah, I maybe... can't say that's a good idea, but especially if this person doesn't, you know, I don't, I don't know if you helping them work on the car every time it breaks is a good idea, but. It's what I do for all of my friends constantly. Uh, it's, <laughs> I, I, Literally had to look at a car yesterday, a Subaru, and I'm going to have to pull the motor out of it. Uh, but I just didn't have enough time yesterday to get it done by the time they needed their car back. So, mm. yeah, it's it's my entire life. It's fine. It's, it's not any <laughs> different than what I always do. I was I was on that for a while. I had to dial that back. It was just fucking with me. I, I should dial it back, but it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I guess what I mean is like, I, I don't know if I would recommend a Yugo as a $1,500 car for someone that just needs basic transportation. You like, well, they have zero get... car right now. And yeah. frankly, the options for a $1,500 car are pretty scarce. So, I mean, if it runs and drives right now and is $1,500, that's kind of better than anything else. Fair enough. Yeah. Also, I'm not seeing this video. You guys are talking about the, the Brooklyn first drive thing it was uh, on the visionary vehicles website like scroll down there's two videos like huh yeah it was maybe just it's not awesome. rendering on this uh on this browser let me try a different browser yeah it's hard to miss oh i didn't even realize if you scroll down further it gives you like the chassis layout and weight distribution and all of that sort of stuff in schematics it does i did not look very closely at that but it it definitely has a lot of like uh what do you call it technical renders i guess I, oh okay so they actually did bank one i gotta say it does yeah. not look like you're changing a tire on the side of the road on that thing no not no. the rear one anyway yeah pretty tucked in there that's a weird layout like i don't know much about like the specific like engineering of of three-wheeled vehicles but this one seems weird and i'm pretty sure it's front wheel drive i the that's what it looks like, the cutaway view. Yeah. I don't like that it says anti-lock brakes as one of the <laughs> features of this. Uh, and yeah. also OEM level safety features. You're the OEM. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. you're not mm -hmm. wrong about that, actually. That's that's concerning. I don't. I, the more I'm looking into this, the more I don't like it. Malcolm, get your shit together. What's what is Ooh, this? Thing? The interior looks cool though. It's got a bunch of lights all over it. <laughs> hey, if you put LEDs on shit, people will buy it. Yeah, I won't buy it, but I'll do drugs and sit in it. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, uh, I think we can wrap up there. Um, Anything else you guys uh, wanted to say before we uh, stop here? Uh, no, I, th- I think I'm good. I, I have I have no like end of the show jokes for this. The end of the show joke is just this three wheeled vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm sure if uh, Connor was here, we'd say uh, check us out on social media, like, subscribe, ring that bell, all that, whatever, you, whatever you say. And and you know, uh, go go check out the bonus content of us discussing Casa Bonita for 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Fun fact, it means beautiful house, and it is neither of those things. <laughs> Can confirm. All right. I think Bye. that means uh, I think that means that's the end of the show for podcast daddy. Kill it. <laughs> uh bye. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. When left entirely on its own devices, capitalism foists its diseconomies and its toxicity upon the general public and upon the natural environment. And then it does an interesting thing. It eventually begins to devour itself. If the paladins of corporate America want to know what really threatens our way of life, it's their way of life. It don't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Winning's winning. Uh, it's important that we examine the twin forces behind the Biden candidacy. The billionaires and the Bolsheviks. Ha 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 